You're listening to the Friends Talking Nerdy Podcast Network. Friends Talking Nerdy. If your friends are nerdy and you are nerdy too, I want to talk to you. The flatulent noises you may hear during this episode of Friends Talking Nerdy are indeed coming from the Friends Talking Nerdy studios, but rest assured, folks, they are not coming from the rectums of your intrepid host. Welcome to another episode of Friends Talking Nerdy. This is Tim the Nerd here, joining you for another lovely week of intellectually stimulating entertainment. Sitting next to me, we have the greatest legal mind of the Pacific Northwest. We have Prof. Professor Aubrey, how you doing? Mm, I'm doing great, Tim. How are you doing? Doing good. <laughs> good. I'm glad to hear it. Um, so, let's, well, you know, what have you been up to this week? Uh, well, uh, do you throw it to me first? I mean, what what about you? I'm interested in you. People you always about... you always do that. Every time okay. I try to throw it to you, you're like, no. So, do you want it. me to go first? I can go first. No, I'll go first. You made it a big deal. We'll, okay. We'll all right. All right. We'll yeah, do it this way this time. See how there, it goes. There, there, okay. Anyway, um, another week of work for me. Uh, so far, so good. I did have some interesting interactions with uh, some Canadian geese that love to hang out by um, by my work, and um, it's uh, near. And, and again, I'm not naming the work or you know the general location, but if you know where Swan Island is on Portland, you have a general idea. Um, but you know, had a couple fun uh, interactions. One I just saw from a distance. There was uh, at the entrance of one of the big places down there, um, right near the entrance. This goose was just sitting there, just sitting there. And then a truck um, was trying to pull in, saw the goose, and was going slowly. But the goose at first was just just like, I- "I'm going as fast as I can, sir. I'm going as fast as I can." And then all of a sudden, it started flapping its wings, and you could just imagine, like, "Fine, sir, I'm moving." Fast faster is this what you want from me where is your manager you know <laughs> yes yes so the cranky sort of cranky old man something goose yeah but i did have a fun interaction with them personally myself oh um, yeah yes i had some trail mix that i brought to work thanks to professor aubrey mm. and um was passing by the geese uh, and i thought why not give it a try pulled out the um trail mix grabbed a couple um because you especially for an, an animal like that a treat is fine on occasion but you don't want to give too much Mm-hmm. You know, but um, I started tossing some nuts around and then one got really close to me. Like if it was a cat or a dog, I could have petted it. But, you know, I, it, d- doing what it did was enough respect. You know, me trying to pet the thing when it doesn't know what the fuck I'm doing, um, you know, would not have been cool. But the goose itself was funny because like they primarily are like eating in the grass. Yeah. And it was funny because, like, it was a little bit hot that day, and the goose is panting, but around its beak was, like, green. And it the, the goose was acting like like a five-year-old, like, on a, on a Kool-Aid binge. You know, can I have some more? Can I have some more, sir? And then I even held my hand out with the nut in my hand. It's like, I'm not going to fucking touch you. You put it on the ground. Okay, you put it on the ground. I'm going to eat it up. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> 
That sounds so very cute. It's so nice to have those little moments that are beautiful and touching. Indeed. Uh, indeed. And the uh, drinking game has started, folks. Uh, and we've got a couple in there for you. Hopefully, by the end of the episode, you'll remember your name. Um, <laughs> but it is definitely nice being able to see them. I mean, there are some squirrels that are by there as well, but the squirrels are a little more apprehensive. The geese are just fun. I don't bother them as much as I walk through their territory trying to avoid the crap on the ground <laughs> right yeah they do um love the spring shoots right sort of i see all animals that eat grass and stuff are really excited at this time of year because everything has started growing again and so it has these really delicious young succulent shoots that they can eat off the top of the grass mm-hmm so, yeah, that was, you know, my big thing. Also met a new friend this week, Rhonda the Vet. Hello to Rhonda the Vet. How are you doing out there? Hey, Rhonda the Vet. <laughs> new fan of the show. So, um, yeah, so that's been my week. So you've had some time to think. What has been your, what has your week been like? Well, you know, like you, it was a work week for me. And I have a big project due on Monday. Um it's currently Thursday as we record this, so I have a couple days left, uh, but I'm quite, one, sick of doing it, honestly, <laughs> and two, you know, sort of in the crunch of seeing if I'm going to even be able to get it done by then. So I'm pretty much working every waking moment, thinking about work a lot. Um, I guess... I did have some fun things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, what were they? Um, Costco trip, I guess. Oh, right. I joined Costco. That was cool. So, yeah. Um, probably the other thing that I'm thinking the most about is my upcoming trip to festival. It is the first big festival of the year. Um, and that out here in the Pacific Northwest is Soak which is the regional Burning Man. Um, So it's the first big Burning Man event of the year. Um, So I went last year and I had a really good time. So I'm going back this year. And it is the Memorial Day week, basically. Um, From Tuesday to Tuesday, I will be there. And um, I ordered some things online that I needed. And we went to Costco and I got, you know, some stuff that'll be useful Um, And I pulled out all my bins and all my camping stuff, and I've kind of piled it all up in um, the studios here and uh, just waiting, you know, till my work is done so I can get the fudge on out, organize everything, get ready to go. It's, It's not nearly so difficult to pack for as Burning Man, but you still are... So it's, it's in the Thai Valley here in Oregon, which is just east of Mount Hood. And you have to bring your own water. You have to process your own gray water. You have to bring all of your own food. Um, the, you use porta-potties. There's no showers. There's no running water. It's, it's very rustic. But it's a huge party with 2,000 people. So you can get an STD and athlete's foot there. (laughs) Wow, that's really hopeful. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. 
I'm an asshole, folks. <laughs> we mock what we don't understand. Exactly. And I don't understand a lot, as we've had over 300 episodes of proof for you all at home. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so that's been on my mind. Um, and then, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about the... Um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees. Yes, we have. Um, kind of a tradition on the show because it's one of those top... I mean, the, I, 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 make it, I make no bones about it. I love music of all forms. While I do primarily love rock music, um, you know, a good musician's a good musician, no matter what genre they're going to be in. And if they speak to you, then it's, it's great. And I think, you know, since we have a platform here, small though it may be, I think the benefit of talking about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is the fact that a number of these artists that are being nominated aren't on the lips of casual music goers today. You know, for as much as the Rock Hall has a lot to critique about it, and boy does it, um, I think its main draw of continuing to educate the public on the history of American popular music, um, I, I think that is a thing that should be, you know, followed up on by having that conversation, by talking about the past. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of um, our institutions do that. I mean, I think, you know, the Kennedy Awards are similar. Um, there's lots of similar honors that we can use to really gauge what's going on in the world. And this is one of them. Yes, and, you know, and, and also, too, like I said, with, with a, a number of these names for, like, casual music fans or young music fans, they may not necessarily know who, you know, Artist A or Artist B is. And this is the perfect opportunity to, you know, if, you know, we as podcast hosts happen to know something about this person, say something nice to where someone else can say, hmm, I think I will check them out because... That, at the end of the day, I think is the mission and something that should be supported, whether it's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Country Music Hall of Fame, etc., etc., etc. But let's talk about the people who got inducted, and then after that we can talk about a couple of the interesting choices on bands and musicians that didn't make it. Okay, sounds good. All right, the performer category. I will name the names if you have a thought feel free i mean obviously we're not this is not our main segment so you will not get our detailed you know everything you need to know about it thoughts from us i guess but name number one kate bush love kate bush just really love her now do i see her as a rock and roll star no absolutely i don't um i see her more as a new age new wave um sort of british new new wave i'm not familiar with her music at all except for that song that was on stranger things that was a viral hit on tiktok um that i guess brought her back into the charts so there's that at least um the rock and roll hall of fame does have a history of striking when the iron's hot <laughs> you know and i think they realize that how many people when in history are you going to have a chance to have this many people talking about kate bush again Right. You know, which if you are a Kate Bush fan, please do not take that in any way, shape, or form as a knock on her talent. Um, again, I haven't heard her work. What what I've heard one song, and it didn't quite work for me, but I'm not insulting her. But, you know, um, it, this is more of... A, 
because of Stranger Things than anything else. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but I think that is a weakness on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, too, that they are um, reactionary with their voting and not necessarily voting to get the most qualified people in. All right, next one, Cheryl Crow. Um, okay, Cheryl Crow, I do not like. <laughs> I have never liked her. It's not like I don't like her personally. I don't know her. But I don't like her music. It doesn't entertain me. It doesn't make me feel anything except annoyance. <laughs> um, I, you know, full disclosure, there, I would put her like in a category like with Taylor Swift in terms of my enjoyment. There are a couple of songs she's done that I like, but I'm not going to listen to an album. I'm not even going to buy for her greatest hits. You know, it's just search out the, if I even have the desire to listen to any of her songs, I know where to find them. You know, um, I, I, you get, she does have a history though. Um, she was a backup singer for Michael Jackson for mm-hmm. a while. So, um, you know, that's her, t- you know, in the late eighties, early nineties, uh, there's some t- extra ties in the musical industry. She did work in commercials, I guess. Um, I'm sure it is on YouTube, but she did a Big Mac commercial or, or some kind of sandwich commercial for one of the fast food joints and was one of those typical singers that, you know, sing about their all for a Big Mac, uh-huh. <laughs> you know? So I, you know, I love a Big Mac. Yeah, I mean, as far as her music, I wouldn't disagree. Like, I, the, the, a favorite analogy I like to use when it comes to any artist, really, is to think of an artist like you would a cook. You know, and I, to me, I think that gives better, people a better understanding of what art really is. Because you can have your gourmet cooks who have the finest ingredients and cook the finest dishes in the world. And you can have people that can make you a good fried egg or a hamburger or something like that. And, you know, if I have to compare Cheryl Crow to anything, she's the Applebee's of music. Applebee's is not necessarily a bad thing, but do I want to eat there every day? No. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good um, analogy to Applebee's. It's just very milk toast, very broad, acceptable to most of the population. It's music by percentage, if that makes sense, because to me, a lot of her work does seem um, like she has a team of scientists, you know, st- you know, like studying recent hits and, and doing something like, if you put this word in verse three or before the chorus, you will get an extra, you know, 500,000 people listening to it. Ooh. You know, just it's something built in a studio. Yeah. Just a format. And it's not like you, I, I can't imagine Cheryl Crow spending too much time focusing on the songwriting aspect. Now, I, you know, as far as like playing the music um, with instruments, that's a different thing altogether. I'm talking about just purely songwriting, you know, and again, formula. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. The next name, I know you were excited when uh, it was nominated here, Missy Elliott. That's right. I was very excited when Missy Elliott was um, nominated, and I'm very happy to see that she um, was inducted or is going to be inducted. And, um, you know, she has got a real, you know, she was a visionary, I think, of female strong rap stars. And I think she paved the way for a lot of people. And so I think. And she's still, you know, on top of her game. You know, her career is still fabulous. 
Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I've made it no secret uh, that I've not listened to her music before, and I don't think it would be something that I would, you know, enjoy myself. Um, doesn't make it bad. Um, I, I think her induction it again shows another weakness in in the Rock Hall um, because it's like it's not that she's not deserving, but this is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I, I can. I can understand and I can not forgive or, or, or just accept, you know, someone that's on the fringe or his, you know, an older artist that, you know, was around before they put certain types of labels on music, having that connection with her. I don't really see it there. I mean, it's not like, you know, you, she, like with Ice Cube, Ice Cube actually did an album with Korn, you know, back mm. in the day. So, you know, there's a tie there. Ice-T with his, you know, metal band body count. So there is definitely, you know, intertwining of hip hop and rock. I just haven't seen it with her. Now, am I going to be picketing the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because they inducted her? Of course not. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, this is about rich people doing rich things. And I think part of my bias, too, is the fact that she, you know, got first started hitting it big once I was in my twenties. So mm-hmm. she still seems like a newer artist. When I think of a classic artist who de- deserves induction, you know, I thought about the guys that were already in their forties and fifties when you know I was just discovering music. You know, so so I think that's part of it too on my end. But you know, I, you know, good for her. Good for her. Like, do I agree with the Like, if I had the vote, would I have voted for her? Is a better way to phrase it? No. But, I, you know, she's done one... She's had one hell of a career. I think, you know... I think you would So you'd be willing to say no to her having never listened to her music? Yep. Because uh, it's not like I wouldn't do research on her. It's not... I mean, if I actually had a vote, I would take time to listen. But I would also do, do a little research to see if there was a connection. Like, one of the people that didn't get nominated, which really shocked me, the White Stripes. Mm. And you have someone like Jack White, who ended up producing and working on an album with, with Loretta Lynn. Um, did a song for the movie Quantum of Solace with Alicia Keys. I mean, that's that's someone I want to see inducted, even if they are not necessarily a rock act. You know, someone who does have that interweaving with, you know, rock in some way. And again, and, and, and I even put this out there to the audience. If there is a connection I am not aware of, by all means, let me know. And then I will gladly, you know, change my opinion from there. But, you know, what I have voted for her, no. But I'm not against her being in. But do you want to go to the next one? Yeah. George Michael. What can you say about George Michael except that he is amazing, um, was amazing. And, you know, so sad that he's no longer with us. At quite the young age. At quite a young age. And... You know, it was interesting to fall in love with him as a preteen teenager and fall more and more in love with him and basically never stopping loving him. Like, you know, he never did anything that made me upset with him. Like, the things he got in trouble for are things that I would get in trouble for. Mm -hmm. You know, he was doing drugs. He was having sex. You know, he he was doing things that are fun, and he kept getting caught doing them. But, you know, I think he had a sense of humor about it all. You know, he wasn't pathetic about it. 
And I know in the late 90s, after he got um, busted in a Beverly Hills uh, bathroom for soliciting a cop for sex, he ended up making a video with like a bunch of, uh, you know, guy dancers dressed as cops that, you know, started dancing and all that stuff. So he definitely had a sense of humor and was able to, he understood that the general public can understand doing something silly, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so, love him. I feel like his music is worthy. I feel like he was a good songwriter. Yeah, I mean, is George Michael someone I would call a rock artist? No, but I think he is someone that, you know, ha- you know, take the duet with Elton John. Don't let the sun go down on me. Um, you know, he's had direct interactions with rock artists. If you, uh, The Faith album. Um, you know, Faith itself, great rockabilly tune. And it has other, other songs on there, like Father Figure, that are intense as hell, that, you know, you put some guitars on there and not keyboards. It's going to sound different, but have the same uh, in, inflection mm-hmm. there. And um, that anthem from that album, Freedom 90, mm-hmm. which was, you know, of course, the anthem... And, you know, you still hear that play today because it was so, so, um, such a, you know, very triumphant song. Yeah. Um, I mean, for the most part, because uh, on Tim Stramendous Tapes, I did listen to one of his greatest hits albums. Um, you know, when we, t- when I talked about uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and he, for the most part, admittedly was making music for people whose taste I don't necessarily like, you know, so I wasn't his target audience. But, you know, like I like I said before, I mean, if there is if there was ever a consummate singer out there who was able to weave uh, seamlessly in and out of different musical genres um, and be emotional uh, with it, uh, you know, you can't get better than George Michael. You know, I want to tell this little story. Ooh. Story time with the professor. Story time with the professor. So it's not even my story. It's from a documentary. But there's this documentary about the Smiths. And it's very detailed. Because the Smiths were only around. They put out four albums and broke up. Mm -hmm. So there's a limited amount of time. And so they covered basically every detail about this band and everything they did. And one of the things about the Smiths, of course, was Morrissey who was outspoken, who was really confident, who saw himself as above everybody else, um, kind of a right wanker, if you ask me. And he was on a TV interview show with George Michael. And he was so disdainful of George Michael, who at that time was, you know, the singer in Wham! and wasn't Oh, you know, wasn't who he was later in his career. Mm-hmm. But the way Morrissey talked about his taste in music and his musical ability, I thought was really awful because I thought he was, you know, he turned out to be so much more talented than Morrissey. Like, if you put their work together over time, George Michael was really an artist, I think, who worked his trade and improved over time. There is, all, and I'm sure you can get this with anything, but there are also gatekeepers. There are also people who think that they're doing serious work while other people are off making garbage. 
you know, like as a writer myself with the types of stories I write, if, you know, the times I've gone to like writers groups have been iffy because sometimes you will get people that are there in the spirit of helping authors get better, which should, should ideally be what a writer's group is for. And then you have people that will sit there and because you're writing a story based on a genre they think is garbage, they will look down on you and not tell you what is wrong with your story, but do everything but. You know, like, it doesn't make me feel. What the fuck do you mean? You know? You want to feel the explosion. You want to feel the hot air whooshing past you. But that is more description than usually you would get. You would have somebody just give some sort of vague term that means nothing that, that makes them feel good for insulting you, basically. You know, and... It's the backhanded compliment. Yeah, you know, the bless your heart. (laughs) You know, you really displayed the ability to formulate paragraphs. Like, would be something that's positive. But, like, yeah, I can write a paragraph. Mm -hmm. Anyway, let's go on to the next name here. I think we can both agree this is a good choice. Mr. Willie Nelson. Of course, this is a good choice. I mean, he is the godfather of music in this country right now, I think. And if he and Dolly Parton got together on a ticket, I think they'd be president and vice president. No, no question. Definitely agreed. And again, another artist who, um, you know, primarily country, but has weaved enough in and out of rock music that his induction definitely deserves it. And, you know, that's what I am personally missing from Missy Elliott. But um, that's because I don't have all the knowledge. I'm not entirely knowledgeable on her career. She may have had some interaction that you know i'm not aware of you know but you know willie for his work in the 70s alone i mean like you take out the fiddle put on more of a guitar i mean what is his are his songs any different no than i what mean the I eagles was, were doing when you were saying you know he's he's a country artist mm-hmm. made me immediately think of whiskey river which i think is a rock and roll song no question you know the song I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Whiskey yeah. River, take, take my, my mind. mind. Yeah. yeah, if you just change the instrumentation, that's like totally a rock song. Yep. Um, uh, the other thing about Willie is that he's so generous with other artists. So I think he, you know, influenced other artists not only through his music, but also through his relationships with younger artists. And he's one of those people that, you know, whether you just like rock, you just like country, you just like soul, you just like hip hop, um, or you're rich, you're poor, you wear a business suit, you wear, you know, corduroys and and a flannel shirt or something like that, you're all still congregating together to celebrate his music. You know, he's one of those people that realizes what music can do, and that's, you know, make, kind of take the sheen off of people's eyes to realize that, hey, we're all kind of in this experience together. You know, just because one person may be making six, seven, eight figures eight figures a year and the other person's struggling to get by doesn't mean they can't, you know, be friends or anything like that. Doesn't mean that they don't have some connection somewhere, even if it's just fucking music. I mean, being able to uh, have a situation like his Fourth of July picnics in Texas, you know, mm-hmm. at least in the past, I don't know if they're current, but, you know, he would routinely have, you know, like accountants dancing with, you know, bikers dancing with, you know, people in cowboy hats, mm-hmm. you know, and that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think country from the 70s 
this kind of country, this sort of outlaw country, highwaymen, kind of countrymen, not countrymen, outlaws, highwaymen, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just very popular in the 70s. It was very mainstream. Yeah, and even into the 80s. I mean, Hank Williams Jr., anybody? Right. You know, because, um, yeah, his popularity didn't start waning off in the mainstream until at least 85, I would think. I mean, once MTV started really becoming big after the first initial wave. Um, but, you know, anyway, should we go on to the next one? Yeah, let's go on to the next one. Rage Against the Machine finally got in. Oh, finally they got in. Finally. Um, you know... Absolutely agree with the choice. Obviously, rock and roll. I don't think that you can make any argument that that is not rock and roll. But it does have uh, flavors of hip-hop. I mean, it definitely is influenced by hip-hop. And um, I think they call it new metal. But, you know, Rage Against the Machine was kind of the first big band to take that metal and hip-hop influence and kind of bring it together. Mm-hmm. Um, now, granted, Rage Against the Machine made their songs about, you know, politics, the events uh, that are happening in the world today. And then people like Limp Biscuit did it all for the nookie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, totally. And I think, you know, it's kind of, I mean, I think it's kind of ironic, Rage Against the Machine. Like, okay, what are you going to, what you know, what is the form of your rage? Yeah. It's like. Well, you play rock and roll at festivals and stuff. Like, what are you doing? Like, you never hear about the Rage Against the Machine, you know, charity or... Well, I mean, they at their concerts, they have, uh, you know, groups, uh, you know, political groups there that hand off flyers on their website. Oh. They have oh, good. Uh, information. I know um, in 2016, Tom Morello, the guitar player, was in Portland, Oregon. Um, it, it, it's like... A block up from Pioneer Square, there's like this little open area that has like a fountain. Director's Park. Probably. And they had a small stage set up and it was him and an acoustic guitar and a couple of other people, um, you know, just playing. But it was in support to try to get people to get out and vote. Um, But um, he took political science at Harvard. Mm. And yeah, I mean, it, and uh, like the lead singer da- Zach De La Rocha has uh, history with um, you know progressive movements as well. So yeah, they're not doing this for the drugs or the nookie folks. I mean, they have a very because um, y- y- like on this show, I know I've been very open and I stand by this that I think people should do- go out of their way for uh, to create conversations with people of differing differing opinion who have who are principled you know who aren't just going to lie or go into you know uh, go into you know their their confirmation bias or whatever but that does not make that does not mean I am uh, conservative myself I am very much a, a progressive I, I I know and um you know, the causes that they generally support are ones I, I would get behind myself, so. Yeah, I guess I was totally wrong about them. <laughs> but doesn't mean you have to like their music. I like their music. I like their music fine. I, I really like some of their music. Hmm. Um, if I could remember any song names, I would tell Bulls you. Bulls on Parade. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, Killing in the name. Killing in the name of, yes. Um, Sleep Now in the Fire, Gorilla Radio. I don't know about those, but. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
anyway, yeah, I like their music, so I'm glad they're getting in there. All right, the last group in the performer category from West Michigan, the Spinners. Now, the Spinners... Kind of R&B and soul. Right, from the 60s. Uh, 60s and 70s. 60s and 70s, yeah. Um, I am sure they were quite influential. Um, I, I, I can tell that you you can't uh, recall one of their songs, but I know for a fact you've heard them. Um, I, I mean, if you've listened to Tim's Tremendous Tapes, I played one of their songs on there, the I'll Be Around. I'll be around. Yeah. So, so you've heard them. And um, I am not going to proclaim to be the biggest fan of the spinners here, folks, but these, again, are one of the people that... Because of the age of the group, I would say would be ones that I would I would say deserve the induction because of their influence on musical history as it's passed down. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that's why you know some of the other names that didn't get nominated this year, like um, like Soundgarden for for instance, like why didn't they get in? The White Stripes and Warren Zevon. Yeah, why didn't Warren Zevon get in? I mean, I mean, this was not the first time he was even nominated, and like with his contemporaries, like the guy who produced one of his albums, Jackson Brown, I believe, is already in there. You have other contemporaries of his era that are already in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's just like, and they already have someone in the name of with the name of David Letterman, who's already offered to. In, you know, to be the celebrity that would induct him because David Letterman was a huge fan of his and was actually on, um, before Warren Zevon died, he, he produced an album and uh, Dave had one entire episode that was just Warren Zevon singing. Oh, and, wow. And talking, you know. Yeah. Um, so it, it's like you have a moment there that could be very special and could be very positive for, you know, Warren's surviving family members, but, you know, other people needed to get in. Iron Maiden did not get in. I mean, they're not crying any tears. <laughs> you know, I mean, Iron Maiden has already openly said, you know, if nominated, they will not run. They will not, you know, they don't, they don't need the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They don't want the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, but it, 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 some of the choices are quizzical. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, yeah, because again, like, would the country Hall of Fame start inducting rock artists? You're generally not going to have that. Would the Hip Hop Hall of Fame start inducting country artists? Well, I don't know. I mean, you do have some hip hop country crossover now. Uh, I mean, could it happen? Sure. And again, if the idea is to nominate people for induction that do have some, you know, some connection, you know, even if it's tenuous or just one moment. I got no problem with that, but you know you have to have an argument for why. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but that was under the performer category. We'll go a little bit faster through these um, others because we have the musical influence, musical excellence, and the Amit Erdogan Award uh, for the musical influence. We have DJ Cool Herc and Link Ray. Um, so excited to see DJ Cool Herc. I mean, he goes way back, way back, way back to like the first hip hop parties. Mm-hmm. 
And um, so, yeah, it's amazing. Hard to mention by the Beastie Boys. I know Link Ray is uh, um, uh, kind of like one of those guitar, uh, surf guitar players or something like that, if mm. I'm not mistaken. I could be totally wrong and talking out of my ass, but hey, we've had more evidence of that on this show than anything else. Um, Musical Excellence Award, which is what they used to get Judas Priest in last year. So basically, these are people that they're kind of tired of nominating because they know they won't get it, but feel they deserve some sort of introduction. We have Chaka Khan, Al Cooper, and Bernie Taupin. You know, I love Chaka Khan, I love Bernie Taupin, and I don't know Al Cooper. I'm familiar with the name, not familiar with his music with Al Cooper. Uh, Chaka Khan, of course, great voice. I mean, she was in the Blues Brothers. I mean, she had a great album just come out a couple years ago that I love. I mean, very active, and yeah, I mean, if she's still putting out albums today, that means people are still buying them. You know, maybe not in the numbers they were in the 70s, but they're still there. And, you know, she definitely deserves uh, recognition. Um, but we'll go to the last one here the Alma Erdogan Award. Don Cornelius. Does that name ring a bell? Of course it does. Don Cornelius. The host of Soul Train. Mm-hmm. I messed that up. But <laughs> I don't have the voice that Don Cornelius had because that, I mean. And his, so who was Ahmet um, Erdogan? I be, I be, he was a music producer and I believe he ran um, Atlantic Records in uh, the Ray Charles movie. Um, he's one of the characters in there because he's one, he's the guy who produced, you know, Ray Charles's first uh, records. Ah, I see. Yeah, but uh, with Soul Train, though, Soul Train did have uh, some rock artists on from uh, at on some occasions. Mm-hmm. Um, Queen, another one bites the dust. That was popular in the R&B community, and they were on Soul Train, and they, they took that as a big-time honor uh, to be on there, so... That's awesome. So, again, folks, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has inducted another class this year. There are many glaring omissions, um, but for the most part, solid list. You know, I, I think the big headliner for me would be Rage Against the Machine, but that's just my... My, based on my taste, I think others would probably say Willie Nelson or or even George Michael or something like that. But, you know, I, I would say overall, not the strongest class in the world. I agree with that. It's somewhat underwhelming. Yeah. I mean, DJ Kulherk being there, to me, really shows that they care about the evolution of music as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that they have to be nimble and and adjust to the reality of the music scene and i think there's not so much i think there's sort of um it's just not much so much about genre anymore i mean because what is genre but a way for businessmen to make money i mean that's all it is because music is music it's really i think it was a way of people being like i like rock and roll and the record salesman would be like oh well you know who's really great rock and roll this person Mm -hmm. well we don't do that anymore we don't go to the record store and talk to the record store owner about records and we look for music much differently because we have these we experience music much differently and so we may be listening to our station or our feed or whatever and we are more get to be more choosy 
But at the same time, it's possible to be exposed to whatever you want to be exposed to. And I was thinking about this the other day, though. Like, um, you know, I thought back to the glory days of MTV, and that was probably the last time to where I consistently had, um, you know, we're talking late 80s MTV here, um, different types of genres of music that would consistently play, you know? I mean, you had your rock, you had your hair and metal stuff, but you also had your R&B, you had your pop music. Um, on Saturday nights, you had your Headbangers Ball. Mm -hmm. um, and, and stuff like that but you, you know for popular music out there you did have you know try this try this try this and I'm sure you had that on the radio uh, back in the day as well when it was more programmed by the DJ that's talking into the microphone and not by a computer program you know thousands of miles away um, you know you had somebody that would be able to say hey this band is you know I, I heard this band's demo tape and just had to play it for you guys here it is you know we don't have that you know we don't have um, Frank Zappa even mentioned this. He said he, you know, when he was alive, of course, he mentioned that he liked music executives back in the 60s because they were old guys chewing cigars that didn't understand the music. But that was a good thing because they decided they would give it a give something a chance, something as crazy and wacky as Frank Zappa. They didn't get it, but they thought, eh, We'll see if we can make some money with it and go from there, you know, but now you have everything so programmed, you know, people think that they're geniuses just because they can, you know, enter numbers into a spreadsheet or something like that. And, you know, I predict within 3% of, you know, reliability that this, it, that's not how creative stuff works. Yeah. You know, what's interesting, um, having grown up in the South and the time that I lived, grew up there, which was in the seventies and eighties. We didn't have cable TV. We, you know, the world was much smaller. And we had a lot of country radio stations, one rock and roll station, and, like, not even a pop station, let alone a hip-hop station. Like, just like all the churches were Baptist. Like, you, they get the flavor down there, and they just want to stick with it. Yeah, both kinds of music, country and western. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I think while it does have downsides, this ability to tap into all of the art all over the world anytime you want, as long as you have an internet connection, you know, has got to have improved the lives of people that lived in locations that did not offer the type of cultural experiences that they would resonate with. I'm not denying that. It's just, it can be easier to be able to connect with a piece of music if you do have somebody, whether it is a friend, whether you have a DJ on the radio, a VJ on TV, or, you know, a computer program now tell you why that is good you know that you don't have like with this with you know something like apple music you can go to any virtually any album you can think of but you know if you don't know about the group you don't know where to start you could hit on something that you know maybe doesn't work for you i mean i wouldn't want you know uh someone to fall in love with the rolling stones and give them their first album or give them dirty work which doesn't sound anything like what people think of when they hear the rolling stones you want to be able to say you know you want to be able to say to somebody that just wants to discover the stones hey check out this album this album, check out or, sticky fingers or you know get this greatest hits album or something like that you know you want to be able to have that and i think that is what is is missing for the most part with these services yes I, I think one thing apple music does right is the radio stations 
you know, which let's face it, you know, Pandora had that idea first, but it's not a bad idea. You know, you know, take some core music that you do like, and then because you like band X, band Y sounds pretty similar, so give them a try. Yeah, and that is really, you know, how algorithms work the best is is finding things that look the same. That's how artificial intelligence sort of starts is I can teach you what this song sounds like. You can, computer, you can analyze it um, just in terms of the key that it's in, whether it's got female voices, whether it's got male voices, you know, just everything about it. And then find music that is similar electronically, digitally. And, you know, it takes a second or less than a nanosecond, right, to do. And so this is the beginning of the robots taking over the world. On that note, let's talk about books. Yes, let's get to our main topic since we had so much fun talking about all those things we just talked about. Indeed. Um, there's another one for you, folks. Um, the Nerdy Five is a great segment because, you know, it, you know, in some ways, and we should definitely utilize this more, it allows us to be able to talk about the show topics more throughout the week. And, um, you know, we did it last week, had a good time talking about that. So I thought for this week, we'll do a Nerdy Five of our top five books to, that were made into a movie where the movie is just as good or better than the book. How did um, how was it coming up with your list? Well, it was pretty easy, I'll tell you, Tim, because I went to a lot of websites that told you the books that were turned into movies. Oh, I didn't. I'm kidding. <laughs> and um, I didn't know. I hadn't read most of the books, so you'll notice my list is somewhat eclectic. <laughs> <laughs> um, and focused on the kind of literature and stuff that I like to read. So. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, you know, some of these choices, I believe, I've, I'm sure I t- I've talked about on the show before, but, you know, I, you know, my list, I think, uh, I wanted to show that, you know, even something as silly as an action movie can come from a book, <laughs> you know, it, it seems like that there are some ideas that can only exist in films, and it's simply not true, um, so just wanted to be able to have that, and not, you know, do the typical, you know, Oliver Twist type of deal, you know, to try to make myself seem, seem smarter than I am, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but since I opened things up this week, how about I pressure you to do your first choice here? What's your okay, first I will do my first choice. My first two choices are by the same author. Um, so my number one choice is Sense and Sensibility, which is a novel written by the supreme novelist of the English-speaking world, one Miss Jane Austen. Nice. Uh, which version of the movie... Excellent question. I'm going with, um, because the BBC version was a miniseries and not a movie, I'm going with the 2013-ish version that featured, I can't remember her name, I really, Kira, Kira, Kira Knightley, Kira Knightley yeah. as Miss Elizabeth Bennet, and, Ooh, yeah. um, this really hot dude who I have no idea who he is and I've never seen him since uh, uh, and I've never seen him before but he was super hot and he played um, Mr. Darcy and it was just so real and so 
um, sensory in ways that none of the previous versions had been, where you could think that was actually maybe what life was like. Um, you know, real life of real people. So um, I thought the movie did a wonderful job of bringing to life the characters and, and scenes and locations of the book. And it was just more... It engaged more of my senses than just the book. So I really enjoyed it, I think, more than reading the book. Although I would never change that I had read the book. Well, there you go. Um, yeah, I've not seen the movie. I've not read the book, so I can't really comment. Um, you know, Jane Austen is one of those authors that, you know, even if you never read a word of her work, she's influenced something you've liked. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that much I can guarantee. And the fact that, yeah, we're still talking about uh, the work of a woman from the 1800s. You know, I mean, that shows you how much it speaks to, you know, the the everyday life of being human. Exactly. Like, whatever the context, whatever the morality, whatever the social construct, we're human. No matter this, I love that. No matter the social construct, we're human. And, um, you know, I went to her house where she lived until she died Mm. in England and it was way out of the way. I had to take a train to a bus to a taxi to get there. And the taxi guy got totally confused and went to the wrong place. Oi! <laughs> because it was like such a little, like, it was like a pilgrimage kind of spot. It was like nobody in this town except people who were going to Jane Austen's house. Mm-hmm. And that was the only thing around there of interest. So, um, she's amazing. She's amazing. Well, all right. How about I go on with my first? You go on with your first. All right. I've talked about this before. It is a book by an author by the name of Roderick Thorpe. It's called Nothing Lasts Forever. It is the sequel to a book called The Detective. Um, The Detective itself was made into a movie in the late 60s starring Frank Sinatra. And um, this particular story, Nothing Lasts Forever, is, you know, the main character of both the detective and nothing lasts forever is going to see his daughter in Los Angeles at a party at a place where she works. And when he arrives there, terrorists show up and start trying to kill everybody. And it's, it's his job to save the day. This is the book that became Die Hard. Oh my gosh. Which is your favorite movie? For action movies, yeah. I mean, if you're not including Die Hard on your list of top five favorite action movies ever, you're not trying hard. No pun intended. Um, And you're about to die hard because Tim's going to kill you. But what I loved about this were a couple things. One, it made me appreciate um, the film even more after I read it because uh, as far as the movie goes, it, it got it got it mostly right in terms of how it was presented in the book. I mean, it was, it's probably 70 to 80% the same as it happened in the book, but the changes that they made... I do think made it better. I think, uh, you know, John McTiernan, the director, when he first read the book, he didn't like the fact that the terrorists in the book were just terrorists. 
he thought that wouldn't really play, that it would be more downbeat for an action film than really deserved. So he's the one who turned the terrorist into thieves and made it, you know, a, you know, a burglary story at that particular point. And, you know, I think that definitely made it better. Mm-hmm. You know, um, mm-hmm. now, uh, interesting enough, um, because the book that Die Hard came from was a sequel of of the book and the movie The Detective, contractually, Frank Sinatra had to be contacted first to play the role of John McClane. Thankfully, he declined. But, you know, just imagine, you know, Frank Sinatra, Frank Sinatra in Die Hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would have been so funny. Like, what would they have done? I mean, they probably just wouldn't have made it. If he said, I want to be in it. it. I mean, he was in his... He had to have been in his late 70s at that particular point, or mid to late 70s. Like, uh, you know, Harrison Ford has done a new Indiana Jones movie, so it could be done. Um, it just tone-wise would be much different, because, you know, being a sequel, uh, it would have to be somewhat similar in tone to the first one. But the first one was more just... In uh, in the characters in the book was not named John McClane; it was a different name. But the first one was just more of a local story set in New York. You know, the L.A. thing was part of the sequel. So you know, going to you know having the new, I mean, I mean, I guess a fish out of water story is always going to work in some way, shape, or form. But you mm. know, I just don't see how it would have worked with Sinatra's sensibilities. Sinatra was not the flashy. Um, I mean, he's a great actor, and we will be talking about him again on my list here. But, you know, he um, was an actor from a different era of films when, you know, actors were expected to do different things than they are now. Gotcha. All right. What's your next one? Okay. So my number two. Number two. <laughs> is going to be Pride and Prejudice. Mm. Okay. So sounds a lot like Sense and Sensibility, and in fact was written by the same author, but is a totally different story with totally different characters. And um, so my the I actually was talking about Pride and Prejudice when you asked me what was my favorite version of <laughs> Sense and Sensibility. Okay. So now I'm going to tell you my favorite version of Sense and Sensibility, since you already know my favorite version of Pride and Prejudice, and that is. Um, the version with Hugh Grant and um, Alan Rickman and a whole bunch of other people that were all awesome. Hmm. And that was came out in maybe 2000. You sold me on Alan Rickman. I know, right? Hmm. He's so good. And this was one of, you know, it was fairly early popular movie that he was in. Well, Die Hard was his first movie, and he was 47 when he did Die Hard. Nice. So, I mean, yeah, he'd been in the business for about a decade at that point, yeah. Right. As far as Hollywood goes, he'd been a theater actor, you know, but anyway. What's your number two? All right, my number two, staying in the British realm here, um, this book here has a long history to be ended up being brought on screen in Faithful. Adaption. There was a version of this movie released in the 60s that had David Niven and Woody Allen and a whole bunch of other people in it playing uh, the same character with Orson Welles as the bad guy, um, which didn't do well at the box office, but, you know, has a cult following. Um, But in this particular version, in the early 2000s, in the mid-2000s, actually, um, Pierce Brosnan was actually told that he was no longer going to be required uh, for his services as one James Bond. 
and the producers decided to hire Mr. Daniel Craig, and that made people upset, because how can Daniel Craig, a blonde guy, be Bond? Bond has black hair, you know, but... Um, Have they heard of hair dye? Well, they didn't go with it, and I'm glad they didn't, and I agreed with their choice uh, with It's Dan not Craig. like we're fooled and think it's the same person. It's played yeah. by different people. Yeah, I mean, if you're so worried about hair color that you're missing other parts of the character, you're not paying attention, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned. But we're talking about Casino Royale by Ian Fleming. And I think the book is a great book. Um, you know, it's it's di- the the books are different than the movies. Some of them are garbage, um, but you know they definitely have a much darker tone than you know the movies. Uh, you know, came out came out with. But you know what I loved about Daniel Craig's Casino Royale was the very last scene because um, Casino Royale, the movie, was was an origin story. Of James Bond. And, you know, at the end of the movie, you have Mr. White, the big bad guy, getting out of his car. His phone rings. He answers, hello. And then you hear a voice in the other line, Mr. White? Yes. All of a sudden, Mr. White gets shot in the leg, and he's, oh, my God, and starts crawling. And then you hear some some music start to play, some strings. You see feet walking. And then it's Daniel Craig, and he looks at Mr. White and goes, the name's Bond. James Bond. Then the music hits, and I saw that on DVD for the first time, and I cheered, and I swear I rewound it back like 50 times. And what? I, why this particular scene? This scene, for me, was important and better than the book because it did give Bond a little more heart. Mm. You know, because at the end of the book and, you know, at the end of a certain point in the film, and uh, did you see Casino Royale? I believe I watched it with you. Maybe, yeah. Um, but th- there's a point where a woman he fell in love with ended up turning on him, and he doesn't know the reasons why. And so he was angry with her. And, you know, the book just kind of left it at that and just let him, you know, hate. And then in the other versions, in, in the other books that came out in the Bond series, you know, Bond views women as, you know, things. <laughs> you know, let, let's be honest here. But, you know, this movie was able to make Bond more human. He was still very much the Bond we, you know, we all grew up and loved, although in very early stages. But, um, you know, I, I think it brought more heart to Bond than, you know, what Ian Fleming gave the character. And, you know, that's why I had to add it. Yeah, totally. I think I watched it and I think I really enjoyed it. I, yeah, I mean, you can't really go wrong with a Bond film. I mean, even because for escapist fun, if that, you know, you get two hours of just silliness and funniness and, you know, you're all over the world. You see beautiful people, men and women alike, and it's great. Yeah, I agree. What's your next one? So my next one is going to be Jarhead. So Jarhead was actually a book that was written by a guy that I used to ride the shuttle bus with. Ooh. He was a visiting professor at Lewis and Clark College when I was a law student at Lewis and Clark Law School. And there was a shuttle that went from downtown to the school and back. And I used to take it all the time because I lived downtown or pretty close to downtown. So I would take my bike downtown and then ride the shuttle up. And he used to ride the shuttle, and we used to chat all the time. And he told me he was a writer, and then he was working on a book about his experiences in the Marines. And he told me all about the book. And then eventually he he put, gave a title to it, and he told me what the title was, and it was Jarhead. And so I kept that in mind, and I bought that book as soon as I was aware that it 
existed um, because I had this personal connection to the author, which I'd never had before. And it was a great book. I was really surprised. You know, you never imagine um, that somebody you've met on the bus would write a really great book, but he did. And then about five years later, I hear this being made into a movie. And I was like, shit, he has really hit the big time. That is so awesome for him. And um, I saw the movie. And even though I loved the book, the book was much more internal and the movie was much more external. Just meaning that like you could get inside the heads of the characters much easier um, reading the book. And in that way, it kind of reminds me of Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. In that in the movie, you really have to pay attention and infer from what from people's actions what a lot of the story is. And that was true in Jarhead, too, I believe. That we got to know the characters by what they did. Because there was... Not much narration. Yeah, and I mean, in movies, you want to show, not tell anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a different form of storytelling. Mm-hmm. I agree, internal monologues are important, but you know, if you actually put most internal monologues on screen, it's really just someone sitting there thinking. And that's not really entertaining, unfortunately. I mean, I, again, I get what you're saying. And I don't think um, on-screen narration is in and of itself a bad thing. But you can do different things with it. I mean, the, you know, based on, how, you know, the time period you're telling the story, for instance. It could be like journal entries or video or letters entries. to each other or... Something like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, yeah. Or I, you've got mail, email. Ooh, yeah. And Meg Ryan did make a sighting recently. Imagine that. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. But anyway. Not she, by you. N- no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. She's married to John Cougar Mellencamp. <gasps> really? Yeah. That's cute. Yeah. I, I, you know, apparently he's still touring, but he looks like he's like touring in between uh, his shift at a factory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's been road hard, put away wet one, one too many times, I'd say. Yeah, I remember when I worked at a music store in Michigan uh, in my 20s, and uh, we had a Ticketmaster Ticketmaster kiosk there, and occasionally we would hear of, you know, like, big-time artists that were coming to town. Um, and, and one time, uh, we found out that John Mellencamp was going to play a secret show at a local club, and, you know, the, they only listed the artist publicly on the Ticketmaster website as, like, Little Bastard or something like that. <laughs> uh, his choice. But, you know, the, the, yeah, the, we uh, the, the, we ended up getting some knowledge on that. But should I go on with my number three? Yes, number three, please. All right. Um, we've actually talked about this movie on the show, the awful remake with Gus Van, from Gus Van Zandt, um, Psycho. Written by Robert Block, mm-hmm. um, based on notorious uh, killer Ed Gein. Are you familiar with that name? No. Well, Ed Gein. Okay, knowing I, I won't go into it too far because knowing your tolerance level for horror, uh, yeah. Um, let's just say that movies that Ed Gein's acts have inspired have uh, been like Psycho, um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Halloween, stuff like that. Mm. You know, so, yeah, he... He was a real baddie. Yeah, not a good guy. Um, But Psycho, so much different than the movie. And what I think the movie got better is they made Norman Bates look look like a nice kid. 
<laughs> you know, what do I mean by that? In the book, Norman Bates is more disheveled, more a little, I guess, overweight or something like that, and just gives you have the immediate impression that yeah, there's something wrong with this guy. Whereas, or that he's super beta at least. Something. He was beta before there was beta. But in the movie with uh, the Hitchcock one, not the Gus yeah. Van Zandt one, um, yeah, yeah, with Anthony Perkins, how he played the character when he was Norman, he was just you know like the kid next door, mm-hmm. um, you know, in his twenties or something like that, but just a local small town kid that you know would always help out with you know the you know milk and the neighbors goats or something. With that like enthusiasm, that. you know, of a small town kid. Yeah, and then when you find out the whole story that you know Norman killed his mother, and because of his grief, ended up having a split personality and thinks he's his mother at times. Uh, you know how Anthony Perkins played that was so crucial. Um, you know because like I, 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 you know I think I pointed out it out in a review of the Gus Van Zandt remake. You know that there's a scene at the end where Arb where um, not Arb Gas but like the boyfriend of Marion Crane, uh, the woman who was murdered at the beginning of the film, is arguing with, with Norman Bates. In the Hitchcock version, Norman Bates doesn't is arguing like in order to protect his mother. He's not trying to hide something. Whereas Vince Vaughn as Norman Bates was acting like I have something to hide so why are you talking to me like little things like that which annoyed the fuck out of me because mm-hmm. it's like you're you're taking you're not getting what you know was perfect but that's what i liked about it because you know hitchcock with the self-imposed limitations he put on himself you know filming a black and white movie in 1960 with a television crew to make a movie that's you know meant for theaters and still have it be as impactful as it is today uh, you know the man was a genius Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he may not have been the nicest person in the world. Um, you know, we find out more and more that the big names in history are all assholes in some way, shape, or form. But, you know, as far as entertainment goes, Psycho, wow. One hell of a one hell of a story, and I think in a lot of ways is better than the book. Cool. All right, what's your next choice? My next choice is The Other Boleyn Girl. I see a theme here. So this is, you know, historical fiction about Anne Boleyn's sister who gets it on with the king but doesn't end up getting her head cut cut off unlike most of his wives. Um, so this is a I feel I feel like it's a book by Philippa Gregory. It's a genre book for sure, like a historical fiction sexy novel (laughs) with the heaving breasts and the corsets and all of that. Um, Any book like that is going to be more enjoyable when you can actually see the costumes and the makeup and the locations um, instead of imagining them. Like it just is a richer world, I think, when you can see it. And again, you see it through... Like, having read the books, then you can see, oh, I see that what the director is doing here. Because it's not 100% true to the book. or But the emotion is the same, for example. Uh, because, as you said, things are different in film and on paper. Mm-hmm. How about you? Um, I've not seen the movie. I've not read the book. I'm definitely familiar with Philippa Gregory. She has quite a long list of uh, writing accomplishments uh, and everything, but 
never really worked for me. Yeah, no, I couldn't imagine that you would like it. Yeah. Yeah, shock folks. <laughs> Shocker. Yeah, yeah, she has nothing on the time the million dollar man tried to buy a slave. You know? <laughs> or the time Andre the Giant kicked that bastard. <laughs> <laughs> All right, shall I go on with my next choice? Yes, please. It's another movie that we reviewed that we actually saw at the Hollywood Theater. Hey. Based on the book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz by L. Frank Baum, The Wizard of Oz, released in the 30s, um, is one of those films that is just pitch perfect in every way. I mean, from first frame to last. I think the reason, I mean, on the one hand, it really has shocked me that with, this, I mean, they're thinking of rebooting The Lord of the Rings now. You know, uh, think of the times they tried to adapt the Chronicles of Narnia books. Um, the Oz books have been virtually untouched, you know, since at least 86, 87 with Return to Oz from Disney. And that was not a hit in theaters. No. Um, you know, the last big attempt. You at- know, which the one I remember the most is The Wiz. Do you ever see The Wiz? No. It was the soul version. I mean, I'm familiar with it. It was amazing. It had Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson and all the Jacksons and everybody else was in it. And it was so good. Hmm. You really should see it. We should watch it. Maybe if we lose another trivia match, I don't know. <laughs> no, it's so good, man. You just—it's so good. Um, uh, you know, because I think—I mean, I love the books. They're based on a series of books, and I think—I I, I think I, I stand by this assertion. And unless proven wrong, I think if you ask the average person on the street, they would be—if you ask them about the Wizard of Oz, they would just probably think of the Judy Garland movie and not think, "Hey, this is actually based on a series of books," you know, and. Um, they're all in the public domain now, so it has really, really shocked me that, I mean, I know a few years back, um, Sam Raimi did have in the Oz, the great and powerful prequel movie that didn't go anywhere. Yeah. Um, and I know there's, um, a movie version of the Broadway show Wicked, um, which is on its way. I'm just surprised nobody has attempted to do the wonderful Wizard of Oz as a live action movie. I think... With today's technology, I think it could be great. Having said that, let's go back to the original. I mean, the original um, looks like it was filmed in the 30s, but as far as the passion, that passion is what's what's keeping it is keeping it as popular today as it ever was. I mean, from you know, uh, from all the actors. I mean, Margaret Hamilton was the first Bond villain before there were Bond villains. The Wicked Witch of the West, you know, just, I'll get you my pretty... I mean, just, she had so much fun uh, with that role. It's just unfortunate she was so good. She continued to scare people. Um, and um, actually, they had a long-standing episode of Sesame Street that she was on as the Wicked Witch that they would never show. <sighs> but um, recently, somebody found the footage and uploaded it to YouTube. So oh, good. There is that. But, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, so much has been said about the Wizard of Oz movie. And again, we've talked about our experience watching it at the Hollywood Theater, but um, you know, watch the movie, read the books. If you have a chance, there's all you know. I don't know if it's available on streaming, but I know John Ritter played Al Frank Baum in a TV movie on on his life, and you know, I did watch that. Yeah, and you know, say what you will about a TV movie, but you know, John Ritter was one hell of an was one hell of an actor. Um, so definitely, definitely read those books. There's a lot more to the Wizard of Oz than just the Ruby Slippers, and the Ruby Slippers weren't even in the book. 
Wow. That is owned by MGM. Oh, wow. But, all right, what is your last choice? So my last movie is Forrest Gump. Hmm. So, again, maybe it's just me. Like, I just process information better visually, I think, um, of this sort. And Forrest Gump is a complicated book. It's a long book. There are lots of different characters. It's a whole lot easier to remember who the heck they are when you can actually see them. (laughs) So it was really helpful to see the movie. Um, And, yeah, what did you think of Forrest Gump? Uh, Read the book and saw the movie. Both are classics, in my opinion. I get your point about the book, though, because for me, um, you know, a book even though you can close your eyes and and imagine it's not going to take the place of being drenched in you know surround sound and having a huge screen in front of you you know that's a different type of feeling than what you can get in the book and yeah you know talking about you know meeting up with famous political figures in the book you know great read but the scope you don't get until you see the movie so it's it's a different beast and i'm glad um you know they didn't go through with a sequel because there is a sequel to forrest gump mm-hmm. um but uh, in the books gump and company i believe it's called um but um yeah it's d- directed by robert zemeckis who did the back to the future films um this was one of the first big um non-sci-fi movies that showed you know modern audiences um at the time in the 90s what uh cgi could do yeah that's right yeah just because of i mean it's it's commonplace now i mean there are apps on your phone to where you can do some of the stuff they did in the forrest gump movie in terms of trading your face out in an old video or something like that but back in the day having forrest gump interact with nixon or kennedy or something like that that was a big deal it was a big deal it was very innovative and the soundtrack that's another one of those great soundtracks like your um uh, american graffiti Mm -hmm. like the dead president soundtrack that is just able to take a time in life and kind of put it on record yeah you know a little bit of everything yeah yeah all right shall i go on with my last yeah one? so let's hear your last one all right um one of my favorite actors is frank sinatra um, not my absolute favorite, but, you know, we're talking like top 10, just, you know, from what I've seen him in, he, he can play a really good, he, he is a sh- probably short guy syndrome more than anything, but, you know, he could play a tough guy <laughs> you know, uh-huh. I had to pretend to be a tough guy, but I chose the Manchurian candidate. Hey. Uh, yeah. This was, uh, came out in 62, but ultimately ended up being shelled for many, many, many years. Because of not because of the story, kind of linking a little too well with the JFK assassination, it came out, that came out right around the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story is about uh, these soldiers in war, and one of them is brainwashed into you know following orders at a particular command um and the enemy who does that is a communist enemy folks and then they go back to america um you know the the soldiers ended up uh, including frank sinatra meets up with the guy who was brainwashed played by lawrence harvey and you know they think they're good friends but the more they think about it just they really weren't 
<laughs> you know, and um, you end up finding out that, um, you know, the guy, the soldier who was brainwashed, his mother is married to a senator who wants to become president, but she's also involved with the people who help brainwash her kid, even though she's part of a political family that wants to fight against communists and stuff like that. And they um, and end up trying to get the, the brainwash guy to do something, but the Frank Sinatra character ends up um, intervening. And it ends up with like a murder-suicide thing at the end. It's it's an intense movie for '62. Angela Lansbury, yeah, plays the mother of of the brainwashed guy and um, doing some not so motherly things in the movie. Um, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, that was further explored on the book, um, but uh, it one hell of a tense thriller. Just, just one hell of a great book, and um, uh, I can understand, you know, out of just the right thing to do. I mean, it, it, in terms of taking it off the shelves so soon after the Kennedy assassination and just giving it time to, you know, separate. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, it was one hell of a great story that uh, it to me was just as good as the book. The book was one hell of a good read. They did remake it um, in the '90s or early 2000s with Denzel Washington, which was not as effective. Yeah, um, you know, and I, I think that too was just. Th- these usual stuff that happens in remakes people thinking hey here's a remake we can do and just doing it without putting any real thought into it but if you have not done so richard condon is the writer the manchurian candidate is the book and the movie you will not be disappointed absolutely so that is going to do it with our list here this week did you have anything else you want to say to our lovely audience um have a safe week, everyone. Have a great time. By the time you hear this, I will be getting ready to celebrate my birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. Um, you will not hear the podcast again until after my birthday. So if you'd like to celebrate my birthday, this is a great time to do it. Yes. So, yeah, in fact, you know, if you are willing to celebrate, listen to the episode and drink twice every time I say indeed. That's right. That'd be great for my birthday. (laughs) Yeah. And then by the time we talk again next week, folks, my feline grandkids will be here. Woohoo! Annie and Mimsy. I have not told Isaac yet that I'm going to change their names. (laughs) I'm sure he expects it. Ah, Yeah. I, what are their names now? I didn't pay attention because I want Annie and Mimsy. <laughs> I, I, you know, we're lucky they're not kids. You know? <laughs> yeah, because they would be Annie and Mimsy. Yeah. Hey, Mimsy, shut up, Mimsy. <laughs> Just so you could say, shut up, Mimsy. Yeah, I mean, I, I did remember a comedian's joke that I laughed a little too hard at when my wife was pregnant about a guy that, uh, it may have been Louis C.K. or somebody, but but the, contemplating the idea of when you have a kid, talking complete gibberish to them to make that their language. <laughs> you know, just <laughs> seeing what would happen. <laughs> Right. Just give names to things, right? <laughs> as long as you called it the same thing. You would have yeah, you would have to come up with words forever. Yeah. I mean it could As long as you called it the same thing, they'd learn it just like any other language, but you will have written a new language. Yep. Gobbledygook, but 
Yes, it's going to be another eventful week here, folks. But, uh, yeah, I think the last thing I have to say to you folks is, read. It, the summer is coming up. We have some beautiful weather here in Portland, Oregon. It is a great time to open the windows, get a nice breeze in, crack open a good book, whether it's a physical book or an ebook or, or an audio book, however you get your books. Um, just enjoy books. They're, they're the seeds for so much stuff that, that we love in entertainment, movies, TV, songs, lots of lots of stuff. So crack open a good book and if you listen if you read any of the books that we recommended this week we'd love to hear from you absolutely let us know all right anything else you want to say or do you want to do you want to get back to writing your paper well you know i still have some work to do before i can go to sleep tonight so all right so we'll get the professor to work here folks each saturday we'll have something in this podcast space to entertain your ear holes until we meet again we bid you adieu good night yippee motherfucker Subscribe to Friends Talking Nerdy on iTunes, the Google Play Music Store, as well as Spotify. Remember to support Friends Talking Nerdy on Patreon. Goodbye, darling.